In the name of God, the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. I want to continue uh, speaking today about St. Paul's letter to the Romans. We're in the eighth chapter now. Um, this is one of the most complete summaries that we have of the apostolic preaching. If we want to know what the message of the apostles was, uh, we can, in, in, in one of the places where we can see it is in St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Martin Luther says about the letter to the Romans that it is the sweetest and purest Christian gospel such that a Christian man should know it off by heart. It's a remarkable letter. It's written by a remarkable man. He's been completely transformed by his encounter with Christ, changed dramatically and fundamentally, and right to the root of his being. And he's writing a letter about the transforming power that is in the gospel. He's writing to the church in Rome, and then one of the unique things about this letter is that, uh, of course, in, in, that, in that day, um, uh, not everybody could read, and so when you wrote a letter, when Paul writes a letter, he often designates somebody to read the letter. And the person designated to read this letter out in the churches, well, it's probably churches. It's probably a collection of house churches in Rome. They may be meeting like 10 people at a time, you know, uh, in their houses. And uh, St. Paul um, entrusts one of his um, trusted co-workers, a woman named Phoebe, and Phoebe is reading this letter out in the house churches in Rome. She probably had to read it out five, at least five or six, maybe 10 times she had to read it out. One would like to have been there and heard her commentary on it as she was, as she was reading it. He's writing because he wants the church in Rome to help him finance a missionary trip to France, what we call now France, Gaul in, in, those, in those days, or Spain, uh, the the, the sort of Iberian area. And he's also writing because he wants them to know that the gospel that he preaches is, is the authentic gospel. It is the authentic good news about Jesus Christ. And I think he also has another motive in this letter, which is that he knows that there is division in this church in Rome. There's tension in this church in Rome. There is a division between uh, what St. Paul calls in the letter the strong and the weak. And he uses those terms somewhat ironically because St. Paul thinks, well, everybody is weak. And the difference between the strong and the weak in St. Paul's mind is that the strong haven't really tipped to the fact that everybody is weak. There's a dispute about what it means to be a real Christian and who's a real Christian. And there are people in Rome that think that if you're a, a real Christian, you want to meticulously keep all the kosher kosher laws. Um, and some of the new Gentile converts can't do that, so they're regarded by others as being weak Christians. But St. Paul thinks, no, there's just, there's only weakness. He opens up his letter talking about two kinds of people. In, in the view of an ancient Jew, St. Paul's an ancient Jew, there are only two kinds of people in the ancient world. There are Jews and there are Greeks. Um, there's God's chosen people and there's everybody else and the name for that is the Greeks. And in the opening of the letter, he says, everybody has some light. The Greeks have plenty of light and the Jews have more light than the Greeks have because the Jews have 
the oracles of God. They have the law and the prophets. So everybody has light. Everybody has light enough, and some people have more light than other. And here's the situation that St. Paul describes in the opening of this letter. Nobody can live by the light that they have. We all stand condemned by our own lights. Now, last week, we had the famous verse uh, from the seventh chapter, all the things St. Paul says, all the things that I want to do, I don't do those things. All the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. This is certainly the condition of the person in St. Paul's view before they encounter Christ. It was, it was his condition before he encountered Christ. He wanted to please God. He really wanted to please God, thought that he was pleasing God. And it turned out when he met Christ on the road to Damascus that he was indeed the enemy of God, was hostile to God, rebellion against God, and persecuting, actually persecuting the body of God's Son. And Jesus says to Paul, why do you persecute, why persecuteth thou me, meaning the, the church, the body of Christ. So even though he thought he was doing good, he was doing, he was do, he was doing ill. So the, the, the reality of the human heart to deceive itself about how good it is is one of the foundational experiences that informs Paul's writings. He opens up his letter talking about the light that the, that the, uh, the Greeks have just from looking at nature. They should see that they shouldn't be idolaters, that there's one true and living God who's the creator of all things, that there's a rationality, that there's one source of that rationality. They should be able to figure. And then there's the, the moral law, which all people have to some degree or other. The Jews have it perfectly, the Greeks have it imperfectly, but nobody is able to live according to the lights that they have. I, I say that one of the, the, the this, is, this is, we want to be right. This is a deep thing in the human heart. We want to be right, we want to be just. We want to be good people. And uh, there are two, well, there's sort of, there are two strategies. They're really kind of variations on the same strategy. There are really variations on the strategy of self-deception, but there are two kind of approaches to doing this. One approach, one approach to re being really a good person, you know, really being able to tell yourself you're really a good person is to dumb down the standard. You know, I, I call it to cook the books. You want to see a really good movie? Look at, see the movie The Big Short. It's about the collapse of the financial markets in, what, 2008, 2009, the subprime mortgage crisis, and it's, it, it, it's a story about self-deception. It's, it's a story about how everybody knew what really good high standards were, but they, but they had perfectly plausible and uh, uh, reasons that became widely accepted for, for, for um, ignoring them. And virtue, it was virtuous, right? Because we were introducing more people to the housing market and uh, we were helping more people achieve the American dream. And, you know, what we were doing was lying and saddling people with debt that would break them for decades. Um, so one, one way of doing it is to, is to dumb, down, dumb down the standards. 
the middle of the last century, we had the sexual revolution, which is a massive loosening of traditional sexual ethics. 50 years later, now we're finding out, gee, maybe some of that was really um, in the interest of men and at the expense of women and children. And so we'll have a reassertion, a new kind of moralism will sweep through. We won't be able to stand that and we'll oscillate and go back to trying to find some way to, to dumb, down the, uh, dumb down the standard. I mean, anybody who's tried to keep a serious diet knows about this. You say, well, that's, you know, that's, I know that's not on the diet, but it's really not, it's really okay. Yeah. Um, or there's, you know, so, I mean, one, one way is dumbing down the, down the standard. Another way, another way is just flat-out self-deception. We just tell ourselves that it isn't so. Six hundred and fifty thousand deaths occurred last year, roughly, but there was no killing involved, we're assured. One of the things that's besetting our politics right now is um, the absolute forgetfulness in the culture, and it's understandable because uh, we, we've drifted so far from our roots in the Ten Commandments. But our politics are horribly polarized right now. One of the things, there are many things that are driving that, but one of the things that is driving that is that there's a forgetfulness of the commandment against bearing false witness. Now, I, when I was a little boy, I was taught by the sisters in this one-room parochial school that I went to that if you found out something bad about somebody, you were not to tell anybody else unless, it, unless they were a legitimate authority and had a legitimate reason to know. Otherwise, you were a gossip and a backbiter and a false witness. Martin Luther taught that in order not to be a false witness, you had to put the best construal that you possibly could on what your Christian neighbor was saying. You had to take it in the best possible way that you could take it. Well, if you want to get a, a talk show on either end of the political spectrum now, you must be accomplished in putting the worst possible construction on what your neighbor is saying. So in the second chapter of the book of Romans, St. Paul says, um, well, um, you have no excuse, O oh man, for when you judge others, you commit the same thing yourself. Um, I was... Um, um, told one time by uh, someone who, if I may say so, was a uh, um, robust and accomplished sinner, uh, that when you have one finger pointing at someone else, you have four pointing at yourself. So Paul takes the first part of this letter to help everybody understand that no one is righteous, right? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves because we have all sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God. One of the things that I'm very grateful for in my theological education was that we were, we were forced to go to 12-step meetings. We were forced to go and find out something about Alcoholics Anonymous, this great movement of um, 
recovery that has helped millions and millions of people all across the world recover their lives uh, from addiction to alcohol and, and from other things uh, as well. The 12-step movement comes out of, actually, the church. One of the prime movers in it was a, an Episcopal priest named Sam Shoemaker. He was the rector of Calvary and St. George Church in, in, uh, in New York City. I've been in his study in the rectory in that church where you can, you can see where the first meetings of that uh, movement uh, took place. They took out all the specifically Christian uh, vocabulary in order to make it as generic and user-friendly as possible. I think that was probably a wise thing to do. But enshrined there is ba basic Christian wisdom that sometimes uh, we lose track of. The first three steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are that we admitted that our lives had become unmanageable because of fill-in-the-blank, well, sin, let's say. You know, they wouldn't say that. They would say alcohol or whatever, but, I mean, we could say sin, right? And then the second step is that we, we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity, and the third is that we turned our lives over. We surrendered. Uh, if you go to a 12-step meeting, one of the things that you will, will strike you is that it is one of the, one, it is, if you're looking for a judgment-free zone, there is a judgment-free zone. So you can't get in the door unless you admit that you need help. So nobody's judging anybody else. There's tremendous solidarity in the need, well, they call it recovery, let's call it redemption. And then there's great solidarity in hope, in the promise that there's assistance. Those two things are the root of what St. Paul calls the koinonia of the Christian church, the covenant, the community, the holy communion of the Christian church, that we all stand in need of God's help and that we all are grateful for God's assistance given to us in and through Jesus Christ the Lord without desert or merit, but by this great sacrifice of love. So St. Paul has described the human dilemma. He's described this problem that we, that we have that we can recognize if we're ruthlessly honest that we can't live even by our own lights as well as we would like to, that we need assistance. And then he says in the beginning of the eighth chapter, therefore there is no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. It means that there's a way out of this treadmill, this rat race, this, 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 this maze of... of um, being overwhelmed by guilt, um, fleeing into self-deception, building ourselves up by accusing others. There's no, no, no condemnation. There's a way out of all of that. And he talks in the eighth chapter about the contrast between life according to the flesh and life according to the spirit. Life according to the flesh is life lived in our own strength. It's life in, in, in forgetfulness of God at best in forgetfulness of God. But while forgetfulness of God is always rebellion against God, and at worst it can be an outright hostility towards God. An outright hostility towards God is one of the 
one of, increasingly one of the characteristics of at least some dimensions of our society. And left to our own devices, there's nothing but condemnation. When Jesus Christ comes and dies upon the cross, he shows evil and sin for what it is and justly condemns it and takes the verdict upon himself. And by his great sacrifice of love, makes his life a victorious obedience available to us through his spirit, the spirit which joins him in loyalty, faith, love, and obedience to his Father. He pours that spirit into us. And though we're being done to death by life according to the flesh. Now, the flesh is not the body. It's not that the body is bad or something like that. There's a Greek word, sarx, which is the word for flesh. So body is soma. That's something else again. Flesh is this whole person in rebellion against God. And, and our efforts to live apart from God doom us. It's an undertow. It knocks us off our feet. It pulls us down. But here is this power that's in Jesus Christ that lifts us up. They asked the old monk in the monastery, what do you do in that monastery? And he said, we fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. We all know about falling down. If we would know more about getting up, we would know more of Jesus Christ. One of the things that Paul writes about in his letter to the, to the Romans is he writes about what difference baptism makes and how to, make, how to have baptism make a difference. And I've said before that Baptism means immersion, and the Christian life starts with us being immersed in, in the death of Christ, his judgment on sin and evil and death, and his victory over them, trampling down death by death, and being immersed in his resurrection and in the power of his resurrection and in his spirit. And how do we do that? By clinging with both hands to the ordinary means of grace, participating in the Eucharist, reading the Bible, saying our prayers, doing such good works as this has been prepared for us to walk in. It's not complicated, but we need to be immersed. We need to be marinated. We need to be saturated so that we might walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I recommend to you the Bible paraphrase called The Message by Eugene Peterson, a Presbyterian scholar. Um, I've talked about it before. It's a, it's a, it's a, he's translated the whole Bible, paraphrased it. It's very good. Most paraphrases are not. His is very good. I just want to end by uh, reading to you his paraphrase of the first few verses in uh, St. Paul's eighth chapter of the book of Romans. He puts it this way. So St. Paul says, for now there is no condemnation. And Peterson says, paraphrasing, the solution is life on God's terms with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. That fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, 
freeing you from a lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. St. Paul goes on to say that through the gift of the Spirit, the God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us up from life in the flesh, from sin, from the death that threatens to be eternal death, and will raise us up and give life to our bodies. If that is our eternal destiny, to have a new embodied humanity in a new embodied community, then with St. Paul, let us press on towards the mark of the high calling that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of God the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in one God.